Well, good morning, church. Welcome as we gather once again uh, over the internet, over Facebook Live here. It is Palm Sunday. We want to be cognizant of that and celebrate Passion Week together and the beginning of it, the beginning of Holy Week. We recognize what Christ has done for us as last week going up to the cross. We're going to start with a reading from Matthew chapter 21 and be called to worship with God's word. drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks and sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before them, and that, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Cross this morning. There is a place where justice and mercy flow as an endless stream, bringing salvation, life, and redemption to sinners awaiting in need. At the beautiful, wonderful cross, at the beautiful, wonderful cross, where the King of all glory laid down His life for us, at the beautiful, wonderful cross. Forgiven, washed and forgotten by love that has conquered sin. At the beautiful, wonderful cross, at the beautiful, wonderful cross, where the King of all glory laid down his life for us. Place 
Let's pray. Father, as your image bearers, we recognize that our hearts are hardwired to marvel. And yet we also understand from the scriptures, most fundamentally, and from our own personal experiences, that because of our sin and our natural rebellion against the living God, we marvel in the creation and the creature rather than the creator. And so the fact that all over the world today, churches gather, in this case, on Facebook Live and social media, to celebrate the reality that our marveling has been reoriented back to the one who created us because of the redemption purchased by the Son of God. It's a miracle that we can sing as we just sung. And we thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy that has come to us savingly, sufficiently, marvelously, in the Son of God, by His work of substitution, His life, His death, His resurrection from the grave, His ascension to your right hand, and where He now rules in session as the King by the Spirit. So Father, we, we want to begin our service today by celebrating the reality of that saving grace. We thank you for your mercy, your grace in your Son. We marvel at that today by the Spirit of your Son. And we pray, Lord, that as we continue in our time of worship through song, through prayer, through the hearing, the preaching of the Word of God, your Spirit would cause us to marvel even more. And we ask these things in the name of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. cross I cannot comprehend the agonies of Calvary you the perfect holy one crushed your son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me your blood has washed away my sin Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. sacrifice I've been brought near your enemy you've made a friend pouring 
summoned to praise the name of the Lord our God. That is the mark of spiritual health. It's the mark of redemption. One of the means towards that end is the preaching of the word. So before we get into our text this morning in Matthew chapter 21, let's ask the Lord by his spirit to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts, wills to respond in the obedience of faith to the preaching of the word. Father, we praise your name this morning. We say with the apostle, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because in your great mercy you have given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance kept in heaven for us that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. No virus, no earthly trial can take that inheritance away. That is eternal for us. We've prayed today, Lord, that we could come to a deeper appreciation, a greater faith, hope, and love in who you are as our God, who your Son is, and what he has accomplished for us. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, the number of good advice articles and segments on television concerning good advice during the coronavirus crisis abound. So, for example, uh, one I read this week, coronavirus tips 
frequently asked questions and advice. Five ways to lead during the coronavirus crisis. How to eat safely during this time. Personal finance advice for the coronavirus crisis. And the reason for these advice articles and segments is that there's no, at this point, universally recognized treatment. No globally recognized medicine that can treat the COVID-19 virus as of yet. And as a result, these advice articles abound to help us cope with and make the best of an otherwise bad and unconquered situation. Now this reminds me of a distinction that the great 20th century preacher in London, Martin Lloyd-Jones, made in a series of evangelistic sermons that he preached in the 1950s on 1 Corinthians 15. And the distinction he made in that series was the distinction between advice and news. Advice is counsel about something that has not been secured yet, but something that you can do to improve your situation. But news is about something that's already occurred, something that has been secured and accomplished for you. All you have to do is is to receive it and respond accordingly to that news. The gospel is the good news, is the pronouncement that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses and sins against them. Now to paint this picture, Lloyd-Jones has us envision a king. This king goes to battle against an invading enemy army. And then he sends out messengers upon his victory. He sends out heralds who go and pronounce that the king has won the victory. Victory has been achieved. The enemy has been defeated. Now in light of that victory, respond in joy. Go in the peace that has been accomplished for you. But if the king doesn't win the victory, he doesn't send out heralds. He sends out advisors. And these advisors tell the subjects of his kingdom, here's what you need to do to secure your well-being. Here's where you need to dig your trenches. Here's where you need to build your blockades. And here's what Lloyd-Jones said. Every other religion in the world except evangelical Christianity sends out advisors who, who give rules, who give principles, who give laws in order to secure your well-being. In other words, they give religious advice. But in Christianity, the king does not send out advisors. The king sends out heralds. Why? Because the victory has been won by the king himself. In fact, the most common word for preaching in the New Testament is the word caruso. 
to herald. The Kerux is the herald, the, the herald of the good news. And because the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is most fundamentally the ultimate good news in a fallen world, it stands to reason that Jesus Christ is the most important person who ever lived. And though we recognize that all 33 years of his life were vital for this message to be good news, if you had to boil down the most important week of his life, it would have to be the week that ended his life. This final week is so vital, it's so fundamental, it's so crucial that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are our four Gospels, they kind of hover over Passion Week like a helicopter. Up to now, for instance, 33 years of Jesus' life has been covered by Matthew in just 20 chapters. But for the rest of his gospel, chapters 21 to 28, it will take place in just one week of Jesus' life. In other words, 25% of Matthew's gospel covers just one week of Jesus' life. For Mark, 33% of his gospel covers the last week of his life. For Luke, 20% of his gospel covers the last week of his life. And for John, a whopping 50% of his gospel covers just one week, the final week of Jesus' life. There are 89 chapters in the Gospels. 29 and a half of those cover the final week of Jesus' life. That begins with his entry into Jerusalem on what we now know as Palm Sunday. And what we're going to see at the very beginning of this, gospel, this chapter is that his entrance into Jerusalem is a very ironic entrance. We see in verses 1 to 7 the ironic entrance of the incomparable king. Now look with me in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Now, up until maybe two weeks ago, Jesus has been in the Galilean district. 110 miles away. So what brought him to the Judean district, to this area? Well, he had been informed by those he loved that the one he loved, Lazarus, was sick and was about to die. And so Jesus made a 110-mile journey to Bethany of Judea. And there he found Lazarus dead and in the seventh sign miracle, John has seven sign miracles, all of them intending to communicate something of what Jesus Christ would accomplish by his crucifixion, his resurrection from the dead. In his seventh and greatest sign miracle, Jesus said to this corpse in the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus was raised from the grave. A glorious miracle, a glorious sign. That's why he was there. But our Lord accomplishes many, many things by every act of providence. 
And so he happens to be in Judea as Passover week approaches. But before entering Jerusalem, where Passover would be celebrated, Jesus came to the Mount of Olives, which was quite significant. Now, Zechariah is a very important prophet in Passion Week for these four gospel writers. We're going to see that later on in this text. But Zechariah, some 550 years earlier, in chapter 14 of his book, speaks about a day called the Day of the Lord. It's a day when the Lord's name will be vindicated, God's people would be saved, and his enemies would be judged. And in that day, chapter 14 of verse, verse 4 says, On that day, the Lord shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. In fact, when this plan reaches its end, its zenith, verse 9 tells us, The Lord will be king over all the earth. The Lord, Yahweh. And so Jesus has come and he is standing on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. Of course, we know that when you read of all that will take place in that day, the day of the Lord, all that will be accomplished, all that will be achieved, it's going to require, we know this from the New Testament, two advents. But what Matthew is signaling here What he's informing us here in verse 1 is that that plan is underway. Isn't that good news? Well, notice with me in the second part of verse 1. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. Isn't that remarkable? Because, again, the Zechariah passage just tells us that the, 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 in that day, the Lord will stand the Mount of Olives before Jerusalem. And here he is saying, I am the Lord. The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Jesus is confessing that he is Lord here in this passage, which was the divine name. Now, if this isn't true, Jesus cannot be considered just a good man or a good teacher. We know that, don't we? If this is not true, when Jesus is confessing that he is Lord, then it makes him either evil or insane. But he cannot be good. Or as C.S. Lewis famously said it, he's, he's either a liar here, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And if it is true, though, and it is, this confession demands our complete fidelity, our complete commitment. It demands our lives. Every aspect of our lives, every area of our lives, how we spend our time, the things we are devoted to, should be lived underneath 
the lordship of this Christ. Now, related to this point, this text drives home that we all live under the gaze of our Lord Jesus. Think about this. He sends the disciples into this place to to retrieve this, this colt, the donkey, and... How does he know that? How do they know they'll, how does he know they'll be there? They didn't have text in those days. They didn't have cell phones. He hasn't even come into the city yet. He's the Lord. That's how he knows it. He's the Son of God. But do you recognize that the eyes that were on the disciples and the eyes that were even on these donkeys are the very eyes that are upon you? That's a very important thought for us to consider this morning. J.C. Ryle, the sense of our Lord Jesus' perfect knowledge of all our ways ought to have the same effect on our hearts. Let us do nothing we would not like Christ to see and say nothing that we would not like Christ to hear. Let us seek to live and move and have our being under a continual reflection of Christ's presence. He is present with us. We see that even here. He knew where the donkey and the colt were. Now, intriguingly, this is the only time in Jesus' public ministry where he actually planned a public demonstration. Now, why is he doing this? Well, he's making a statement. He is the great end-time prophet, prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Of course, we know all of the prophets of the Old Testament um, would take symbolic actions to convey a spiritual point. It was common. And we see it here in this passage. Notice in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Of course, you recognize this prophet is Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughters, or the daughter of Zion, Behold, our king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Most specifically, this is a quotation from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah is a, considered a minor prophet, not because he's unimportant, but because of its relative shortness in length compared to, for instance, Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah. But Zechariah is alluded to or quoted over 80 times in the New Testament. In fact, He is the most quoted prophet in the Passion Narrative, which is the final week of Jesus' life. And so these gospel writers are very dependent on Zechariah. Now, Matthew just quotes one verse from Zechariah 9. But one thing we, we know that is when a New Testament writer quotes an Old Testament verse, it's intended to prompt recall of the entire passage. The New Testament writer is assuming you know your Old Testament. And so when they quote a verse 
or a text, that is shorthand for the entire passage. They, they expect you to know that entire context. And long story short, in Zechariah 9, now he's quoting verse 9 here, in the first eight verses of Zechariah 9, we see a prophecy that will be fulfilled. Now, Zechariah is prophesying around 520 B.C., but we see a prophecy in verses 1 to 8 that will be fulfilled by Alexander the Great in 333 B.C. But now, starting in verse 9 of Zechariah 9, we see that the military fulfillment points to a greater fulfillment, a greater spiritual fulfillment, a spiritual conquest by a king who is far, far greater than Alexander the Great. In verse 9 of Zechariah 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Familiar words, aren't they? It's exactly what Matthew's picking up. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So there's three promises in verses 9 and 10 that are critical. First of all, rejoice. No matter what your circumstances are, and in that particular context, they had no king. They were back in the land, but they had no king. And they were under the thumb of a pagan government. Rejoice, though. Your king is coming to you. That's the first promise. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. The second promise we see here, he's coming to bring peace. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, which would have been the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes, and the war horse from Jerusalem. That refers to the two southern tribes of Jerusalem and Judah, Judah and Benjamin. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He will bring salvation to the nations. So the second promise here, first of all, the king is coming. Secondly, he's coming to bring peace. The kind of shalom, and that's the word, the kind of shalom where it will make war instruments and weapons unnecessary in that day. And we might add even medical equipment, even medical science in that day. And then the third promise in contrast to Alexander the Great, whose name is not mentioned in the first eight verses, but it's clearly a prophecy fulfilled in him. In contrast to Alexander the Great, he'll bring lasting shalom to the ends of the earth. Notice, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Isn't that glorious? One day this king's rule, his saving reign will extend from the end to the ends of the earth. Every nook and cranny of this created order will be filled with his rule and reign. Now, we know that he is sovereign to the ends of the earth even now. This is not a sovereign reign that we're referring to here. This is a, a reign of peace. It's a saving reign. But verses 9 and 10, verses 1 to 8, are only part of the context. Notice in verse 11, As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you. Think about that. The blood of my covenant. Verse 16. 
on that day, the Lord their God will save them. And so because of the blood of the covenant where he brings salvation, notice in verse 11, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. That is the hope of this coming king. He will set the prisoners free. He has come to set the captives free by the blood of Yahweh's covenant from the waterless pit. And then verse 17, how great is his goodness. How great is his beauty. That's why we sang this morning, how marvelous is our Savior's love. And so this king is going to come, unlike Alexander the Great and all other kings, in humility because he is going to save by the means of blood. By the means of the blood of the cross. I think that's what Paul is referring to in Colossians 1 verse 20 when he says he has made peace by the blood of his cross. Now how does blood bring peace? Because the chaos is due to our alienation, our hostility towards God and his wrath on our sin. And so he sheds the blood, satisfies the wrath of God, and he makes peace. He makes peace vertically which will show itself horizontally. But it's also very ironic because in the ancient Near East, a triumphal entry was similar to what we would call a a victory parade. It occurred when a king or a general would ride into the city he's conquered or a city that that belonged to him. He would ride in on a war horse or a chariot. This king rides in on a donkey. Now notice in verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. Matthew's the only one that mentions both. I think the donkey is the mother and the colt is following the mother here. And put on them their cloaks And he sat on them. Pretty remarkable. This is just simple obedience on the part of the disciples. You know, most of life is just spent in just doing mundane acts of obedience. No one else is watching. Simple obedience. But in my estimation, the disciples' fidelity to Jesus here magnifies his worth, glorifies him more than the emotional response that we're going to see from the crowd. That brings us to the second part of this passage, the inadequate response to the incomparable king. Now notice in verse 8, so he sat on the the colt and he's making his way into Jerusalem. Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And so the crowds are recognizing something great here. Jesus' earthly ministry is drawing to a close. And what's remarkable here, he's no longer seeking obscurity and secrecy. Up to now, when someone confesses him as Lord, as Messiah, he says, tell no one. Because he knew that They were expecting a different kind of king. 
It would have been a premature act to try to appoint him as king until they recognized who he really was and what he came to do. But now he's doing everything in the open. He wants it to be seen and known. You know, years later, Paul would tell the Roman authorities in Acts 26, 26, you know these events weren't done in a corner. Certainly they weren't. They, this, was, this was a public event. And though they, I believe, were clearly oblivious to what Jesus was coming to do at this point, the crowd responded the way ancient people responded to a king, the way they welcomed a king. And this was a way of saying that Jesus was too worthy to ride on an ordinary road. He he deserved a royal carpet. That's why they lay down the branches, the palms. Notice in verse 9. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now this would have been a a very familiar scene. A, A king parades into a city. And yet this is an ironic a very strange triumphal entry because this king is plainly clothed. He does not have on kingly or military apparel. He rides a donkey, not a war horse, nor does he ride in a chariot. And he's meek. He's not bold and brash. And perhaps most importantly, the victory hasn't been achieved yet. But by entering Jerusalem in this way, Jesus is arousing enthusiasm from the crowd. And he knew that this was going to aggravate the religious leaders. In fact, there were religious leaders in the crowd. Luke makes that very clear. Up to now, Jesus had pushed away the attention to himself uh, because it would have led, as I said, to a, a premature kind of appointment to him for him as king they didn't know who he was yet but now in the fullness of time jesus is going public in this final week he is inciting the intention of the religious leaders and that's another reason i believe jesus came in this way that's why he planned this event and also by entering into jerusalem this way jesus is forcing the Sanhedrin to respond. Jesus is no victim. John tells us, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay down my life on my own accord. And so he is forcing the Sanhedrin to respond to him on his own terms and his own timetable. He now knows, he knows that now is the time appointed by the Father that he should be offered up. But to the point of this verse, a central reason behind this praise was that many in this crowd, now not everyone in this crowd, there were true believers in this crowd, but I would say even most in this crowd believed that Jesus 
was spearheading a movement to deal with Roman occupation. Roman occupation in the Holy Land and in Jerusalem was very unpopular with the Jews. This had happened before. We've seen it in 2 Samuel, haven't we? The greatest king in Israel's history up to now who defeated all of their military enemies, David. And hence, the line here, as they quote from Psalm 118, which was a messianic psalm that spoke of a greater David to come, a greater king to come. Verse 25 of Psalm 118, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Save us, we pray, O Lord. What is the Hebrew word there for save us? It is Hosanna. Save us. Hosanna. Verse 26. Blessed. Psalm 118 verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which would have been the Davidic king. The son of David. This is rightly a messianic psalm. In fact, it's one of the six most quoted psalms in the New Testament. But here's the problem. When they cry, son of David, many, if not most of them, are thinking of what David did in his military battles. In fact, over the previous three sermons, two of those three sermons, we have seen David going to war against Israel's military enemies in these military battles, their foes. And this is what they were looking for. To give you a sense of what they were looking for, hear this writer from the intertestamental period that represents most of Israel in this day. Lord, raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction. You see, in that day, they perceived their greatest problem was outside of them. Their greatest problem wasn't their sin. Their greatest problem was their military enemies who had occupied the land. Of course, we know that the military's enemies occupying the land was the fruit of their deeper problem, which was they were under the covenant curse. Even today, if you go to Jerusalem, you hear the Jews speak. They believe their biggest problem are all the enemies that surround their borders. They don't recognize that their greatest issue is idolatry. And so though some recognized him as the long-awaited Messiah, Many of them recognized him as the, the son of David. As we're going to see, it was an inadequate understanding of Messiah. And for others, there was no understanding whatsoever. Indeed, notice in verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Now, some estimate during Passover week, some Two million people ascended on the city. I mean, that's, it's always considered going up when you go to Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred up saying, 
Who is this? Now, there are three discernible wrong responses in this crowd to Jesus. Two we see explicitly in verses 10 and 11. First of all, we see ignorance. We see ignorance of Jesus. They, they ask, who is this? Now, though Jesus had been in Jerusalem several times in his public earthly ministry, there were those who were perennially ignorant. So, for instance, in Matthew 4, 25, this very gospel, great crowds followed him from Jerusalem and Judea. John tells us in his gospel, verse 23, uh, 23, uh, chapter 2, 23, many saw the signs that he was doing there in Jerusalem. Many. For example, one of the signs that happened in Jerusalem was the miracle healing of the invalid at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. He had been an invalid, I believe, for 38 years, and Jesus miraculously healed him as one of the seven sign miracles. It happened in Jerusalem. And there were many remarkable things he taught in the city of Jerusalem. For instance, in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to him, this happened in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, unless a person be born again, he will not enter the kingdom of God. In John 3.16, Jesus said these words in Jerusalem, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That happened in Jerusalem. John chapter 5, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Those words were spoken in Jerusalem. And yet there were those in Jerusalem, even now, who did not have a clue. They were perennially indifferent. They were ignorant of the things of Christ. But a second wrong response is by those who seek the answer to the question that is posed in verse 10. Notice in verse 11. And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus. From Nazareth of Galilee. So these people were very positive about Jesus. But as we're going to see, it was a superficial understanding. In other words, they had an inadequate understanding of Jesus. So we've seen an ignorant response. We see an, an inadequate response. Now, they've already recognized him as the son of David, prophesied in Psalm 118, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. All of this correct. I believe that their praise is correct, but I believe that they are speaking greater than they know. And here they add that he's a prophet, and certainly he is the, what we would call the eschatological prophet, the end-time prophet that is prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, the one who will reveal the will of God for our salvation to us by his word and his spirit. All of that is true, but clearly, as the week progresses, their support is going to melt away. And so I believe they have the right terms, but the wrong definitions of who Jesus is. Now, why do I say that? Well, in chapter 23, just a couple of chapters over, you can look over in your Bible 
in verses 37 to 39. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. He sees the city as a whole, representing Israel as a whole, as still in rebellion. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, Jerusalem will be desolate until they mean what they said on Palm Sunday. That's why I believe that largely, though there were certainly true believers there, largely these confessions were inadequate. And I think that's an important lesson for us here. It's not enough just to think positively about Jesus. Wherever you go in the world today, whatever culture you may go, you're going to hear positive assessments about Jesus. Gandhi, who was no Christian, had a positive view of Jesus. There are many liberals who do not believe that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead who have a positive view of Jesus. But at the day of judgment, Jesus will not say, you had a positive view of me, well done and faithful, good and faithful servant. And so there was an ignorant response to Jesus. There is an inadequate understanding. And because of ignorance and this inadequate understanding of Jesus, their delight in Jesus is going to be only temporary. And it's not going to end matched with fidelity to Jesus. By Friday, it says the crowd. Now again, we're speaking with a painting with a broad brush because there were certainly true believers in that crowd, but they weren't many. By Friday, they were preferring, the crowd was preferring Barabbas, a criminal, over Jesus. And they were crying, Crucify him, crucify him, because it had come to their attention that he was not going to be the kind of Messiah like David. Now, there was a third response that is more explicitly picked up by Luke in his account of this triumphal entry. And Luke says in Luke 19.39, in this account, there were Pharisees in the crowd who said to Jesus, to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. This is an indignant response to Jesus. So you have an ignorant response, you have an inadequate response, and you have an indignant response to Jesus. This is outright opposition to Jesus. Now it's easy to think that of all three of those responses, the most sinful is this indignant Outright opposition and hostility to Jesus. But the Gospels are clear that all three responses fall short of the glory of God. Ignorance, an inadequate response, 
and an indignant response. All of these will be brought underneath the condemnation of God in the end. The fourth response is the only saving response. And that is, as we see even with these disciples here, besides Judas, bowing to his lordship. Bowing to who he is as Lord. It is recognizing that I can't sequester one aspect of my life if he's Lord. I've got to bring everything underneath his lordship. That means the way I spend my time, the things I watch on television or the internet, how I interact with my spouse, my children, my parents, my classmates, my neighbor, my co-workers, what I do when no one is watching, because if Jesus even knows where some arbitrary donkeys are, he knows our hearts. The one who formed our ears, does not he hear? The one who created our eyes, does he not see? Isn't that what the psalmist, Psalm 94, tells us? And we do this not simply because he's a humble king. And we do this not simply because he is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of these writing prophets, but because of the blood of the covenant, to use Zechariah 9, verse 11 language, he came to set the captives. He came to set the prisoners free from the waterless pit. In other words, no advice here. No advice here, just news. Just news. Because the victory has been won and will be won in time in this passage by the king. In that regard, <coughs> in the last four weeks, much has changed. Financial, medical concerns, much has changed. But in that regard, the king has won the victory. Nothing has changed. And that news, that good news, is now the lens by which we view all other news. You know, a few years ago, it came to my attention, I could not read without glasses. And so, that's the reason I wear these glasses. They're cumbersome. I don't like having to wear them. But when I put these glasses on, things that were obscure now become very clear. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus the King's victory is now the lenses by which we view everything. Some things have changed. The news has not changed. Jesus is still the reigning king. In his death, we still have the forgiveness of sins, and we commit sins every day. Sins of omission, sins of commission. Things that we do, things that we leave un left undone. We still have the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us, which means nothing can separate us from his provision, his care. His goodness. 
Jesus' reign is still guaranteed to prosper. That's the good news. It hasn't changed. And I say that as not your advisor. I say that as your herald. Live in light of that good news. May it be the lens by which you view everything that you see and experience in this broken world. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have a king who came lowly to die a lowly death, crushed on a cross, satisfying your wrath on our sin, but was raised from the grave, ascended to your right hand where he is now king, king of the earth, ruling and reigning in control, communicating his goodness, his sovereignty, his blessedness over the earth in spite of what we see, in spite of what we experience in this broken world. He is our hope. And as a result, he is our treasure. And Lord, if there's any who are viewing this morning who've never trusted the king, I pray that your spirit would convict them of their sin. Lord, that you would even remind them by the tragedy that's taking place in our world with this coronavirus that we're not promised tomorrow that we are very mortal but lord that you would convict them of their sin and show them that you have made provision for sin in jesus christ who shed his blood to satisfy the blood of the covenant to set the captives free and may they trust in christ this morning may they repent of their sin and and flee to Christ, our King. And we ask this in Jesus' name, for His sake. Amen. On a hill far away Stood an old rugged cross The emblem of suffering and shame and I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. And so I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down I will cling to the old rugged cross And exchange it someday for a crown Oh, the old rugged cross So despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me for the dear lamb of god left his glory above to bear it to dark calvary and so i'll cherish the old Trophies at 
today here by the digital means we've all been relying on recently. I want to say a couple of quick things here at the end uh, before you, we officially dismiss you here. Um, number one, we're having a, a Good Friday service. It'll be at 6 o'clock uh, here streaming on Facebook, 6 o'clock on Friday evenings. Want to make plans to join us here for that. And also, if you're new to First Baptist Fisherville, if you're just joining us and you're interested or curious about the church, our phones still work. And the website, the website and email still works and are virus-free. So feel free to contact us and get more information. Whatever you may need, any prayer requests, uh, feel free to reach out in those ways. So with that said, let's go to the Lord and end this. End how we began with a word of prayer. Father, we do want to come to you this morning. We want to give you thanks for what Christ has done, for the fact that he fulfilled prophecy in, in entering into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey and fulfilling what Zechariah, who centuries before had fulfilled, uh, had prophesied, demonstrating in the fulfillment of, of such a prediction 
that your word is a unity and it has Jesus Christ as its epicenter and focus. And Lord, I pray that the people uh, we were viewing this morning have been blessed by the means of grace. The apex of all Christian worship is the preached word. And so, Father, we pray that even as the, the soil was tilled and turned and seeds watered, we pray that you would bring the fruit that only you can bring through the preached word. And as your word is, is sung and is read out over your people, Lord, do the work that only you can do, even this week. Keep our thoughts heavenward and help us to be mindful this week of what this week is as we lead up to Good Friday and Easter on Sunday, well, we, where we will, through whatever means necessary, celebrate the risen Christ. And so until then, watch over your people. We love you. You are our shepherd, not just of our lives, but of our souls and of our eternity. So we come to you through Christ and by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Y'all dismissed.